want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. And while you're turning there, uh, let me share with you a couple of things. Uh, this past week, you know, we've had an intercessory prayer ministry for a long time. And even at its peak, we have never had every hour filled in a 24-hour time span. It's been difficult to find folks who would pray at 2 and 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning. And uh, so we've struggled with that, prayed about that. There's been a lot of discussion and prayer among the staff and a real burden among many of us about intercessory prayer and the need to pray for lost people, the need to pray for the membership of this church, for missions, for uh, physical needs that people are having. And for the first time in the history of our intercessory prayer ministry, which is now about five years old, uh, this past week we filled three 24-hour days of people around the clock praying. I was uh, doing some video work with Lee one afternoon, and I came up on one of our young men, and he had his two small kids. And the wife was in the prayer chapel praying, and so she could go and pray an hour. He was outside in the car and on the playground just trying to help out so that she could pray. And by the time that they were getting ready to leave, a, a mom came up with her kids, and she was ready to walk into the prayer chapel. And I thought, you know, here are young adults and young families, people with small children, and they're finding a way to pray. They're finding a way to get along with God. And I thought, how many people do we have in this fellowship who are retired or who don't work during the day or who can get up early in the morning and can go in that prayer chapel and pray, but they make all the excuses in the world. And the ones that have the excuses don't use them. And this next week, as I took that to the Lord and told him my frustration with all that, he just said, I'll take care of that. Don't, don't you worry about it. This next week, we will fill five days in the prayer chapel. Young adults will take three, meeting adults will take one, and senior adults and singles will take another one. Five consecutive days, around the clock, people in this church praying. Now, folks, let me tell you what that means. That means that the devil wants to make all hell break loose. Now, do you understand that? Do you understand that? I mean, that means the devil's not happy. You know, the devil fears the weakest Christian on his knees. He doesn't care about your talk about Jesus. He doesn't care about your bumper sticker that says, I love God, honk if you love Jesus. He doesn't care about what you put in the offering plate, but when you pray, he knows he's in trouble. And so as you pray, you need to be ready for the fact that as the spiritual temperature of a church goes up, also the demonic temperature and activity around a church goes up. And the enemy is not happy. And he will not be happy. Because when we get a hold of God, God begins to get a hold of us. You know why God wants us to pray? Because he wants to tell us some things. And when he starts telling us things, then we've got to listen to him. And when we listen to him, we obey him. And when we obey him, we begin to walk in victory. And when God begins to do that in the life of an individual, and when he begins to do it in the life of a congregation, something begins to happen. But every time there's a movement of God, there's also a parallel movement of the enemy. And you need to be aware, and you need to be cautious, 
and you need to put on those full armor of God because the enemy wants to defeat anything that exalts Jesus Christ, that gives glory to God, and brings about the salvation and reaching of people's lives. So I want to encourage you, whether you're praying in the prayer chapel, or praying at home, or praying while you're driving your car, pray without ceasing, because God's got something he wants to do in this place, and he wants to do it in a mighty way. The intensity of prayer right now lets me know that God's up to something. It also lets me know that the enemy is going to be up to something. So be aware and be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And love people and stay on your knees because that's where you're going to win the victory in the spiritual battle that is before us. Nehemiah chapter 8 says in verse 1, and all the people, by the way, if you haven't found Nehemiah yet, it's between Ezra and Esther. I'm sure you had devotionals in Ezra this week. Actually, it's a pretty good book to do devotionals in. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1, And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. When I went to uh, Oklahoma in view of a call, I, I had a meeting. Terry and I drove up one night and had a meeting with the pulpit committee. Now, interviews with pulpit committees are always interesting things and in and of themselves, and you can write volumes of stories about them, but uh, I had this meeting. We met about halfway between Fort Worth and Oklahoma City to, at a Holiday Inn on the side of the interstate and got a table in the restaurant. And we began to talk about church, and we began to talk about the Bible. And uh, there were five men on that committee, and uh, almost all of them had been on previous committees. The chairman had been called, I think, the last five or six pastors. He had been the chairman of the pulpit committee in that church. So he was a quite influential man in the church. He was a mover and a shaker. And uh, we were talking about ministry and about philosophy. And, and finally, we were just sitting there, and, and, and Terry was sitting on this side of me, and I was here, and, and Pete was right down here at the end of the row. And Pete was involved in a lot of ministries around the world and had traveled all over the world with uh, preachers and other people. And, and he, he said, so. He, he took, a, got, took a big cut of steak, and he got ready to put it in his mouth. He said, so. He said, what do you think about music? And I was chewing food. Now, you never try to answer questions when you're chewing food because your mama told you that was rude. So I finished chewing my food, and I said, well, I said, I think music and, and the worship and all that happens is an appetizer to prepare us for the entree because the Scripture talks about that the Word of God is meat. And I think that the, the appetizer is to prepare us for the entree. And he said, huh. He said, well, let me just tell you something. In our church, the appetizer is so bad that you have to wake up the congregation so they'll eat the entree. I thought, now there's an honest pulpit committee chairman. <laughs> and you know what? I went there, and he was right. He was dead right, and it was dead. And the minister of music came to me about three weeks after I'd been there, and he said, he, he said, he talked like this. Now, that's what bothered me, first of all. First thing that bothered me. 
He's lighting his loafers, and it bothered me from the very beginning. He kind of talked like this. He said, Pastor, he said, we're going to do Brahms Requiem next year, and we're going to sing it in Latin. I said, what? He said, we're going to do Brahms Requiem next year, and we're going to sing it in Latin. I said, not in this church or not. He said, oh, well, people, I said, people won't understand it. I said, you going to have an interpreter? I said, until they can learn to worship God in English, I don't care if they learn to worship God in Latin. <laughs> and that brother went to another field of service in about three months. But, uh, you know, I thought a lot about music because in that conversation with uh, Pete in the, in the pulpit committee, he said, you know, he said, I just wonder sometimes if we could just take music out of the church. I said, no, you can't do that. I said, because in music you express grace and the goodness of God and the glory of God. In preaching, you gain knowledge. And you can't separate the Word and worship. In fact, in many ways, the, the Word, the one who preaches the Word, is the worship leader because the Word is what tells us about Jesus. And in worship and in singing, we sing about what we've learned about the Lord. You can't separate scripture and song. Good name for a children's choir program. You can't separate those two things. Why? Because they are wed together in the scripture. Now the book of Nehemiah gives us some insight into what preaching ought to be as it relates to worship. And we've already read verses 1 through 3, but I want you to look at the last part of verse 3. All the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, if you look up there in uh, verse 3 in the first part, he says he read from early morning until midday. These people had gathered at the water gate. It was the Feast of Trumpets, their New Year's. And here's how they celebrated New Year's. Ezra read the Bible for five hours. And the people were attentive. Now, he didn't read John 3.16. He read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. Some of us can't make it through a half a chapter of Numbers without wondering when we're going to get to the good stuff. You know, he read those five books for five hours, and the people were attentive. They tell you now in preaching classes that you have two minutes to get people's attention in America for a sermon, or you lose them. Two minutes. Five hours. Which one do you think God would bless? What do you think God would do? Two minutes, five minutes, 30 minutes. Well, how long is that sermon going to be, preacher? Well, until I get done. <laughs> and I've never preached five hours, so nobody's got anything to complain about. Until I decide that my name's Ezra, don't worry about it. I haven't even preached an hour yet. Came real close a couple of times, but... I haven't preached that long yet. They were attentive. Now, why were they attentive? I'll tell you why. Sooner or later in your life, the Lord is going to test you on the Word of God. Sooner or later, you've got to listen and learn because there's a test coming. And we are not responsible so much for what we hear. We are responsible for what we would have heard if we had been listening. If we had heard what God said and listened to what God said instead of letting our minds wander, it takes attention, it takes thinking to listen to the Word of God. I heard people say, uh, 
uh, this last, during the last Bible conference with Dr. Phillips, and he's just too deep for me. Well, listen, if somebody's teaching you that doesn't know any more than you know, he's not much of a teacher. I mean, you've got to have somebody to stretch you. You didn't go to college to learn kindergarten stuff. And you don't have a Bible conference without trying to stretch your mind and to learn and to dig and to study and to decipher what it is that God is trying to say to us. And I'm just going to tell you, we ought to just pull the tape because he's told us what's going to happen in the second coming. Some of you don't know, and you don't need to get the tape to try to figure it out because it's too late. <laughs> Maybe. See, how do you know? Most of us know just enough about the second coming to be real dangerous theologically. You have to be attentive to the Word of God and to the preaching of the Word of God. Secondly, the Word demands respect. Look at verse 4. And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose, verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Now, you want to know why Baptist churches have pulpits in the middle and, and they're central and they're elevated above the floor level and why the pastor doesn't preach down on the floor? That's the verse that tells you why. It emphasizes the centrality and the respect for the Word of God, that the pulpit is central. Now, in some churches, they're off to the side, but in Baptist churches, we believe that the preaching of the Word of God and the Scripture is central to life. We have to understand the Word of God. And so the preacher is up, and Ezra was up, not so he could say, look at me, but he was saying the Word of God stands above the people's opinions. The Word of God stands above all else. Everything will pass away, but my Word will not pass away. And the reason that the Bible is central in a Baptist church, or supposed to be, is because we believe that this Word is the final authority for life that it tells us how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to act, and when it's read, we are to respect it. Verse 6, we're to respond to it. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. And that was somebody besides Carl Staten. <laughs> Go ahead, Carl. Where are you? Amen, thank you. <laughs> While lifting up their hands, must not have been Baptist. Then they bowed low, weren't Baptists, and worshiped the Lord. They weren't even Methodists. And their faces to the ground. And you know, it's amazing. It's amazing to me. And listen, I was raised, and I'm just, I'm just as honest as I know how to be, okay? I mean, what you see is what you get with me. There's no hidden, hidden agendas with me. I mean, you won't know what I think. You don't have to ask me. I'll tell you anyway. Uh, I mean, amen, amen. I, it, it's amazing how much you have to beg God's people to say amen. I mean, you just have to say, you know, boy, isn't God good? Amen. And, and every time I do it in this church, I have to ask you to repeat it because then I've got to get the other 95% to agree with it. Now, why is it when God's been so good to us, we have to be begged to say amen? And they said, the people said, amen. These are all the residents of Jerusalem. There may be thirty to 50,000 people. Amen. I mean, they were loud. Must have been some preachers in the crowd trying to work it up. Now, I know, I love what E.V. Hill says. E.V. Hill says, in the black church, you don't have to ask for amen. We get it automatically. He said, amen. And then notice what they did. They lifted their hands. You know what a lifting of a hands is? Let me tell you what it is. 
It's not that you've got some gift. The lifting of the hands is a sign of surrender. You ever watch an old Western? You ever watch an old Western? Come out with your hands up. Why? Because you hadn't got your hands on your guns. And you hadn't got your hands in your coat where you can't see them. And so what does a guy do? What does a police officer in Albany, Georgia, if he gets somebody covered, what does he do? Come out with your hands up. He doesn't say come out with your hands behind your back. He doesn't say come out with your hands in your pocket. See how deep I can get those things. He says come out with your hands up. Why? It's a sign of surrender. Guess who's in control? Not you. It's a sign of surrender. They bowed down. You know what bowing down was? It's a sign of submission. You know what you do before a king? Well, before the kings and queens now, you just kind of figure out if they're all crazy, but what you're supposed to do before a king is you're supposed to kneel before a king. You don't strut into the presence of a king. You don't casually approach a king. You kneel before a king, and bowing down is a sign of humble submission, and they put their faces in the ground. Well, now, preacher, I mean, this is just, this is too much. I mean, do you know how difficult it is to clean linen? And if, and if I bow down, I, I may get dirty. If I put my face in the ground, I, I may pick up some dirt. My clothes may get wrinkled. You know what that is? That's pride. That's pride. We come bathed in our pride. And God wants us to be bathed in His glory. We come bathed in what are people going to think of us if we bow down? Well, if your skirt's too short, they're not, they're not going to think the right thing, I can tell you that. You need to be ready to be in a position to say, Lord, here I am. Lord, I'm right here. And you know what happens when you put your face in the ground? Are you, are you ready? Okay. This is irreverent. Don't worry about it, but it's okay. You know what happens when you put your face in the ground? When you put your face in the ground, you can't see anybody coming up behind you. It's absolute trust. Because you're not prepared to fight. You're just submitted. I mean, you can't fight. You can't argue. You can't check and see what the opposition's doing. You can't do anything. All you can do is get before God and say, Lord... You're going to have to protect the front and you're going to have to protect the back because the only thing I'm focused on is you. See? You know what we do? You know what we do? We walk around like this. Keep away. Arms length. Don't touch me. I, I, my, my shirt starts. Don't wrinkle my shirt. Uh, uh, what? Don't, uh, don't get by me. God says, when you get in the Word, it so overwhelms you that you submit to what God said to you. You say, Lord, it's not my job to protect my life. It's your job to be my defense and my shield. Then he says the word demands exposition. Verse 8, and they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Now let's go to Acts chapter 2. Hold your place in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 and go to Acts chapter 2. For there is a great example of the centrality of the word in worship it's a great example of preaching and of exposition. Acts chapter 2, he talks about preaching, vindicating the truth in time. Now, the truth is not always vindicated in the moment, but the truth is always vindicated in time. Acts chapter 2 and verse 14. 
Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judah and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Now, following this, he begins to tell us why Joel prophesied. And he, he quotes Joel and he quotes Psalm 16 of David. And he tells us why the prophecies were given. In verse 17, he tells us that God prophesied to equip God's people. Look at what he says. Then I will, verse 17, that I will pour forth my spirit. God has poured forth his spirit to equip his people to do what he has gifted them to do. For you to use the spiritual gifts that God has given you and the abilities that God has given you, the Holy Spirit is given that you may be poured forth on you so that God can do a mighty work. Secondly, in verse 21, it is to affect God's purpose, to bring God's purpose into effect. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, folks, let me ask you something. If a lost person had sat by you today, would they have been so impressed with your representation of Jesus that they'd turn to you during the invitation and say, how do I get to know him like you know him? It is to affect God's purpose. The word of God and the worship of God is that people will come to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, look at what it vindicates beginning in verse 22, and I'm just going to run through these real quick. In verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. The first thing he vindicated was his incarnation. Jesus was God in flesh. And when the word of God is preached, it vindicates the incarnation of Jesus. In verse 23, there's a vindication of his crucifixion. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. God's predetermined plan. The scriptures were fulfilled when Jesus was nailed to a cross. It was prophesied in Psalm 22 hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented as a method of execution. Verse, the third thing is a vindication of his resurrection. Verse 24, God raised him up again. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again. The disciples didn't steal his body. God raised him up. Jesus didn't have a fainting spell, and then when he got inside the tomb, he kind of came to and re-energized and moved the stone out of the way. God raised him up. The angels moved the stone. There was a vindication of his resurrection, verse 33. There's a vindication of his exaltation. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Why? Because he's been exalted. All roads lead to Rome. All texts lead to Jesus. They tell us from Genesis to Revelation about God's love for us. We are to preach because the truth is vindicated in time. Secondly, preaching proclaims the truth without apology. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Well, I don't believe that. God's already settled that. 
See, man's opinion is never the last word. God's word is always the last word. Your opinion doesn't count. My opinion doesn't count. We preach and teach the word without apology. If you don't want to be a part of a church that believes the Bible from Genesis 1 to even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and we kind of got a hunch the concordance and the maps are inspired too, then you're in the wrong church. If you want a church that waters down the gospel and tickles ears and says what you want to hear, you're probably in the wrong Sunday school class. Because this church is committed to preaching the Word of God without apology. That means if it steps on toes or if it embraces you with the love of God or if it confronts you with the judgment of God, it is to be preached without apology. That's the purpose of the Word of God, to bring us face to face with God's Word. And then we say, Lord, you know, you're right. You're right. I'm wrong on this one. You're right. Thirdly, it is to preaching demands repentance. Now, when this, they heard this, they were pierced to their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Three things. First of all, when there is repentance, there is first of all conviction. Conviction. When the Spirit comes, Jesus says, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. There is conviction. Now, notice, these are people who have been ear witnesses and eye witnesses to the crucifixion of Christ. They have been ear witnesses of the word about the resurrection, although Jesus only appeared to His followers. They've heard this rumor about the resurrection. But between Good Friday, when Jesus was crucified, and the day of Pentecost, they have not been moved to change their opinions about Jesus or their way of life. But when Peter preached with the coming of the Holy Spirit in that upper room, and he preached with authority and with power, these people, unmoved for up to this point, said, What shall we do? Now, folks, that's what preaching does. It brings conviction. What shall we do? If you sit in church or in a Sunday school class, if you watch by television and you go to a church where you never ask, what shall we do? I'm going to tell you what to do. Get your church letter and go to some church that will make you ask that question. Because you ought to come to church and ask, Lord, what am I supposed to do in light of this? The story is told of a man who preached in Korea, and he preached on John 3.16, and there were thousands of people in this building, and he had preached about the love of God, and he gave an invitation, and after the invitation, he said, now you're dismissed to go home, and some Korean man in the back stood up and said, how can we go home having heard this? John 3.16, we don't even open our Bibles because we think we know it, but we've forgotten what it means. We know it up here. We just hadn't got it down here yet. You see, it brings conviction. Secondly, it brings confession. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Repentance is an inward change of mind and heart, and it is an outward change of life. Baptism doesn't save you. We take people through these baptismal waters almost every week. It's not so that they will be saved. It's because they have been saved. We have in a lot of our foreign missionaries in countries where it is a risk of your life to be baptized. 
You can profess faith in Jesus Christ. You can tell people on the street you're saved. But when you're baptized, you run the risk of having your life terminated, either by your family or by the opposition to Christianity. In Egypt, if we have 30 baptisms in Cairo, Egypt, in a year, it would be like 3,000 baptisms in Albany, Georgia because it's risking your life because people stand on the outskirts and if they have an opportunity, they will kill you the minute you leave those baptismal waters and walk out in the crowd. It is a confession. Baptism says, I am identifying and confessing that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Then it's controlling. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's allowing the Holy Spirit to rule in your life. It's not just the initial act of receiving the Spirit, but it is the continual attitude of walking in the Spirit of God. Now the word demands action. Look at verse 39 of Acts chapter 2. Salvation is one thing that it demands, for the promise is for you and your children. And for all those who are far off, see Jesus was already telling them that the gospel is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles, it's for the world. As many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. God's call, God's wooing, God's pulling, God's convicting power. And with many words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And so then, those who had received his word were baptized and were added to that day 3,000 souls. You see, adding to the church in the invitation is an act of worship. It's not something we do to kind of wrap it up because we don't know what else to do. When an invitation is given, it's an act of worship. It's an act of response. And one of the reasons I don't give an invitation all the time is because people need to learn to invite God into their lives whether they walk an aisle or not. But you see, when there is an invitation given, it's an act of worship. It's not an add-on. If you're sitting around trying to get your purse and your coat together and closing your Bible up and trying to get your kids all straightened up during the invitation, let me tell you what you're doing. You're blaspheming the Word of God. Because the word, and if you're leaving early for any other reason that you've got to be at work and you've got an emergency, if you're leaving early, you're spitting on the Word of God because the invitation is the time when the Holy Spirit draws people in. And if you go out that door and some lost person watches you go out that door and they go to hell, their blood's on your hands. You understand? The Word of God cannot be treated lightly. And when we treat the invitation lightly, we say to God, it's not important that we respond to what we've heard. We accept it as information. Now may we be dismissed. If you're going to church for that, find another place because this is not where you want to be. This is a place for a response to the Word of God. This is a place where the Word of God is the final authority for our lives. And the Holy Spirit of God brings that word to our lives and there's salvation that comes. Secondly, there's celebration. Now go back to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Verse 9. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, I thought about this, well, wouldn't it be nice to have a governor come to church? <laughs> we used to have a governor of the state that was a member of this church. Now we'd just like to have a governor of the state that knew what a church looked like. Uh, Nehemiah, who was a governor, that wasn't politically correct, was it? Well, who cares? Uh, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. 
for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Now, several things. First of all, when I hear the word, I want to praise God. That's what it says in verse 9. I want to praise God. They went to celebrate. That's what it says in verse 12. Once I've found forgiveness and once I've met the Lord, I want to celebrate. I want to praise God. Secondly, when I hear the word, I want to celebrate with God's people in verse 10. Now I want you to notice what it says. <laughs> Eat of the fat. I love that. <laughs> oh, man, cheesecake, red meat, potato. Put, yeah, put sour cream, cheese, and butter in double portions on top of it. Hey, I'm just trying to be biblical. Eat of the fat. All these people telling me not to eat of the fat, they want me to live longer. I don't want to be 80 years old. I want to live a full life, but I don't want to get to the point where I can't enjoy Jesus and enjoy fellowship with God's people. I've lived too long if I don't know how to enjoy Jesus. He says, eat of the fat. Now, notice what else he says. Drink of the sweet. <laughs> Boy, I'd forget those Diet Cokes, man. I'm going for the real thing. <laughs> 16 teaspoons of sugar. Yeah, drink of the sweet. I mean, it was only when we got technology that we came up with this diet stuff. Give me the real thing. That's why we got sweet tea. You see, God moved you south of the Mason-Dixon line so you could appreciate sweet tea. I mean, you go to these places and you say, I like sweet tea. They say, we don't have sweet tea. You know, I want to say, are you communist? <laughs> you people must not love God. I mean, it says drink of the sweet. I mean, you know, I mean, that's what I want. I want sweet tea when I go to a restaurant. I don't want to have to sweeten it myself. I want somebody to sweeten it for me. Drink of the sweet. Send portions. Boy, give, give to those who are downcast. It is a attitude of coming before God and being with God's people. Thirdly, when I hear the word, I want to hear more. This day is holy to our Lord. Now let me tell you a trend that worries me. It's the trend of churches canceling Sunday night services. Because they say, well, you know, our people need family time. That's why you got Monday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. I say, well, that's not family time. You see, my kid plays softball, and I got another kid plays soccer, and I got one that plays t-ball, and I got another one in band, I got two in ballet. I got, listen, that's your choice. Don't blame it on God's night when you take your family nights to get your kids so stressed out trying to make them somebody that you don't have any family time. Now, folks, nobody can organize your time but you, and nobody can clutter your calendar but you. And we're getting all this, we're so worried about, oh, we got our kid of kids in there. We got to get them developed. They got to, they got to play ball. They got to be in ballet. They got to do all these things. And he would say, man, we don't have any time with our family. Let's stay home from church tonight. Scripture and songs not important. It's not important that our kids learn scripture. It's not important that our kids learn how to sing. It's not important that our young people learn how to sing. Oh, we can't miss softball now because that's important. My kid's a starter. And if they miss, they may not be a starter anymore. You know what you've said to your kid? 
Put it on your kitchen wall. As for me and my house, we will serve softball. Because you told them you're not going to serve the Lord because you thought you had an option on Sunday night at church, but you've never exercised an option with sports. Let me ask you something. If your family gave as much time to God as it gives to sports, how much better off would your family be? And if your family gave as much time to sports as it does to God, what kind of athletes would you have? See, we get our priorities all messed up. And we think we've got to make our kids athletically inclined. Well, I tell you, most of them are born with two left feet and nothing's going to change. You know that the chances of a kid playing in the NBA, that you have a better chance of being hit by a meteorite if you live to be 75 years of age than you do to play basketball in the NBA. Do you know how few people ever make it beyond high school? How few ever make it beyond junior high? And we get so caught up, but you know what they're going to be doing? When they're 30 and when they're 50 and when they're 70, they're either going to be walking with God or they're not. And we're trying to hurry these kids on to things that will not last and giving up things that are eternal. Then when I hear the word, I leave a different person. And all the people went away to eat and drink because they understood the words which had been made known to them. See, when God steps into our life, He changes our day-to-day -day living. He changes what we do. He changes who we are. I read a story this week about a guy named Ralph. And Ralph was one of these guys that, I mean, he just seemed to fill every moment of his life up with God. And helping God's people and doing things and serving people and loving people. It just seemed like every moment was lived to the fullest. He wasn't biding his time. He wasn't wasting his life. He was using his life to the glory of God. Somebody asked him one time, I said, Ralph, how come you're like that? He said, well, I'll tell you. He said, when I was in the war, now when somebody says they were in the war, that means they were in the Second World War. For those of you that don't understand that, that means they were in the war, okay? When I was in the war, my job was to clear minefields. And he said, when I would go through those fields, I would watch one buddy after another get blown to pieces and killed. And he said, I survived the war without ever having stepped on a mine. But what I learned in clearing minefields was to live between the steps. Because I never knew when I picked this foot up if I would have another breath when I put it down. And he said, I've learned to live my life between the steps and to take advantage of every move in my life for God. Let me ask you something. How are you living between the steps? How are you living between Sundays? A lot of minefields out there. Minefields to blow up your family. Minefields to blow up your witness. Minefields to blow up your integrity. And if you're not living between the steps like you're supposed to by learning to worship and learning to live in the Word, 
There's going to come a day when you're going to take a casual step and you're going to think nothing about it and you're going to be flippant and you're going to step on a minefield and you're going to blow your life, you're going to blow your witness, you're going to blow your family, you're going to blow your testimony. And somewhere along the line, you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, you know what? I gave you a good church. I gave you a good book. And if you'd done what you're supposed to in that church and with that book, You'd have never stepped on that mine. But because you thought you knew best, you blew up and you lost your witness. Folks, people that blow up in the Christian faith and go off in the ditch and cave in, it's because somewhere along the line there became a slow leak in the tire of their devotion and their praise and their worship and they're looking in the Word. And they stepped on a mine. How about you? Here I am, wholly available. As for me, I will serve the Lord. Joshua said that. It's a good thing for us to say. Would you stand, please? Heads bowed. In a moment, Bill's going to sing that chorus, Here I Am. There's one question that you have to answer today. Just one. Just one question. What shall I do with what I've heard? What shall I do with what I've heard? Whether it's the fact that you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if it's that you need to come and be a part of this church family, whatever it is, there's only one question. Lord, what shall I do with what I've heard? Now, if there's a voice speaking to you saying you don't have to do anything, that's the devil. Every one of us has something to do, some decision to make, some commitment to make, something to take out of our lives, something to put into our lives. The altar's open. The staff is here. You come and respond and answer the question, what shall I do? Thank you for joining us for this series on worship. I pray it's been a blessing to your life. The Word of God has much to say about the subject of worship, and we want to encourage you to join us each week and find out what God is saying to you about how you can learn to worship Him. This has been a blessing to you. Would you write us, please, at the address on your screen? We'd love to hear from you and know that God has used this message in your life. Until next week, God bless you.